0: Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics, this is the Bellator Christi Podcast, and this is your host as we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas, yours truly, Brian Chilton. Archaeology is a science that can confirm or deny events of history. When the Bible makes narrative claims, it is presenting history as opposed to when it presents parables or poems of the sort. So the question is, does the biblical narrative match the archaeological record and vice versa, does the archaeological record match the biblical narrative? Today we have a very a wonderful guest, a very fascinating guest, and that is Mr. Ted Wright. Uh, Ted uh, received his bachelor's degree uh, in archaeology from the Cobb Institute of Archaeology at Mississippi State University. He also received a master's in apologetics at Southern Evangelical Seminary, has taught Old Testament for years, and has actually been featured on CNN on uh, a program called Jesus Faith, Fact, or Forgery, and also on the History Channel's Mankind, the Story of All of Us, which aired around 2014. So Ted Wright has went on several uh, archaeological expeditions. He's spoken at the National Conference on Christian Apologetics, and it is my pleasure and honor to welcome Ted Wright with us on today's podcast. Ted, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Hey, Brian, thank you so much for having me on. It's an honor to be here with you today, sir.
0: Well, as we ask uh, all of our first-time guests, if, if you, which I hope and pray that this won't be our only time that having you on the show. We we'll hope to get you back on because uh, the conversations we've had before the podcast uh, recorded have been very interesting. And I want to tell you, if, uh, if you're listening to the podcast today, you are in for a treat because we have a lot of great stuff for you today. Uh, but if you would, uh, share with everyone how you first came to Christ.
1: when I was uh, uh, living at home with my parents, and uh, my mother uh, took me to uh, vacation Bible school, and I was about nine years old, and uh, so, uh, to make a long story short, uh, the pastor, uh, we were all in the main sanctuary, and, uh, you know, uh, so so the pastor came out and explained uh, the gospel, and... uh, and I, it sort of just struck a chord with me. I understood that I was a sinner, and that I wanted to receive the free gift of eternal life. And so, uh, you know, at, at, you know, later in the day, I told my teacher, you know, you uh, know, the pastor was talking. I, I want to, I want to receive that gift that uh, is offered through the gospel, you know, through the grace of God. And so, um, I did that, and uh, I was baptized in that church. It was Avondale Baptist Church, and it was in West Memphis, Arkansas, which is where. Uh, I grew up for uh, several years, and then we moved on to uh, Memphis and uh, down to Mississippi. Um, but yeah, it was—I uh, was nine years old, and I did understand it. And uh, my faith, you know, has since then has grown, and I've asked lots of questions, which really kind of got me into apologetics because I had—I was one of those kids that had a lot of questions. <laughs>
0: I'm right there with you. I, I always uh, bugged my parents with a lot of questions and my son is taking that after me and so uh I'm I'm being paid back for that now cuz he has tons of questions as well. <laughs> well, as we were mentioning uh now you've talked uh, Old Testament for several years um it, it, within the within the Bible narrative uh, there are several things that are challenged uh, one of those things is the Exodus, uh, which we find in the uh, the Pentateuch or the Torah, depending on uh, how you term it, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, so the Exodus has often been challenged by critical scholars. Uh, what has led to such skepticism? It's uh, a great question, Brian. Um, you know, I was just
1: talking to a friend recently about this very question you just asked, and I was I didn't know you were going to ask this particular question. But that's fine, um, but. That's a great question. So where I would say the skepticism began, and obviously there's always been people who have been skeptical about the text, you know, whether back then it was written down. But as far as the modern world goes, I would probably place that probably during the time of the European Enlightenment, in which uh, you know, men begin to see, uh, again, to have more of a scientific outlook, and they begin to see that knowledge comes to the senses and that the Bible is not really necessarily a science book that's more of a religious book. So they began to separate um, the Bible away from any other writing during the time of the Enlightenment. So since the time of the Enlightenment and going on uh, into the uh, probably you know 18th century, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, uh, that skepticism began to grow and grow and scholars began to see the Bible as basically just a book, a worthless book that comes to telling any kind of historical truth. And uh, that is until, until the... Uh, advent of archaeology. Archaeology began to reverse a lot of the skepticism that uh, people began to see in the text. But I would say probably the skepticism began during the time of the European Enlightenment.
0: Now obviously uh, folks like David Hume would have a big influence on uh, some even the anti-supernatural biases that we see even in modern society. Yes, absolutely.
1: Hume, a and uh, I was trying to think of other. Immanuel Kant is a huge figure. It figures into biblical skepticism. Um, you know, Kant separated the noumenon from the phenomenon. I don't know if remember, your listeners are familiar with philosophy. But, but yeah, uh, you can. Uh, several years ago, uh, Dr. Norman Geisler, who uh, studied under at SES, uh, wrote a book, uh, wrote, actually wrote an article uh, when he was president of ETS called Beware Philosophy A Warning to Biblical Scholars in this article, Dr. Geiser outlines uh, some of the warnings that we should be on you know, guard against, and philosophy affects everything. And not only does it affect biblical scholarship, but it also affects archaeology as well. Uh, the, the interesting thing about philosophy, Brian, is that uh, there is no, no realm, no area of study that philosophy does not, does not affect. And so that's why my master's degree, uh, even though it's in apologetics, it's concentrated in philosophy, because the philosophy affects everything. And one of the things that I, as a scholar, want to do and want to continue to do my research on is this influence of poor and bad philosophy in archaeology and, and also in historical study.
0: Absolutely. And you know, a lot of times people will look at uh, critical scholars and say, well, and I've even heard people say this, they, they must be uh, more unbiased uh, pertaining to archaeology since they are anti-supernatural, but is it? it really shows demonstrates the opposite that they have uh, the, their bias affects their the way they interpret data and the way they observe history in and of itself i mean it's like with hume i'm you know uh, really familiar with him that you know if if you cut out the the possibility of the miraculous then it really is going to affect a lot in the way you view anything in life absolutely and i want to even out this brian um
1: Several years ago, I was preparing for a lecture in one of my Old Testament classes, and I had one of my books that I had as an undergraduate in archaeology, and it was written by a very prominent Israeli archaeologist by the name of Emon Tor. and in the preface of the book, I mean, I, I got a highlighter, and he just was just going off and, and making these statements, and this is, not, mind you, this is a book published by Yale University Press. And Dr. Ventour Professor Ventour is making all these grand sweeping statements, but not one single one of the statements had anything to do with archaeology at all. These were, these were the conclusions of philosophical uh, uh, thinking. These are not, you know, everything he was talking about had nothing to do with archaeology and with the discoveries of archaeology. It all was just, he was basically talking about anybody who, uh, tries to connect the Bible with archaeological data. It's just the the epitome of irrationality I' am like why what what does that have to do with anything you know how is that connected to, to discoveries in archaeology? Uh, and so he was just on this tirade but a lot of a lot of archaeologists that do that and a lot of scholars that do that they will make statements the, uh, the conclusions have nothing to do with they're, they're not conclusions of archaeology they are conclusions of philosophy. so that's all fine and dandy but Uh, But that's philosophy, that's an archaeology. Archaeology is the study of material remains of past human cultures. And what an archaeologist does is we try to to understand these material data uh, that's left behind by a particular culture, and we try to understand uh, what these people, you know, what was going on at a particular site. Now, obviously, when we have a historical text, uh, this will let us know uh, more insight uh, into the historical background of the artifacts or, or the, the material data, um, and obviously there's a lot of things that go into place. It's not there's no absolute perfect objectivity. Everybody has their own biases, but uh, what we try to do is we try to eliminate all the biases and just try to you know uh, give a good, sound uh, reading of the text or of rather of the of the artifacts. But basically, there are three. Uh, historians, we call them primary sources, and uh, really, yeah, there are three of those. Brian, there's the eyewitnesses of a historical event. Then we have the historical data, the record, and then we have the archaeological remains. So there's three primary sources when it comes to reconstructing the past. Obviously, with the Bible as well as many other documents in the ancient world, the eyewitnesses are are dead. We don't, we can't, you can't interview the eyewitnesses. So the only thing that we have left remaining is the archaeological data as well as the historical data, if there is, in fact, any historical data. And there's, you know, obviously writings are limited and sparse. So whenever we can find a document that is going to throw insight into a particular uh, set of artifacts, then we certainly want to consult that. And I will just say here at the very beginning, at the outset, that of the of the books or of the documents from the ancient world, the Bible is head and heels far above any other document in the ancient world when it comes to historical reliability. I mean it is very very historically reliable now Has every single thing been found? No, I mean it hasn't, but what we found so far uh, Essentially uh, backs up what the biblical narrative says um, obviously there are gaps and there's things that we're still learning about uh, But by and far the Bible is an extremely reliable historical document when it comes to ancient history
0: Amen, amen we know of the events in the Old Testament. The Exodus is one that uh, probably has faced more uh, criticism from from scholarship than perhaps any other event in the Old Testament. And I'm surprised to even find that uh, this skepticism doesn't even come from unbelievers, but and, and not only uh, from from the genre of liberal Protestantism, but also from uh, some some Jewish scholars, not all, but some Jewish scholars as well. Uh, so before we investigate the Exodus itself, uh, what is the best date to present for the Exodus account? Uh, is it an earlier date or a later date? Uh, what's the best date?
1: Well, that's a great question. Um, so I, I just want to read a quote here from uh, one of my... My favorite mentor, professor friends, uh, Dr. Eugene Merrill from Dallas Seminary, he says basically he says the date of the Exodus is the most important event in Israel's past. Uh, it's so crucial to the rest of the story that it's mandatory to give some consideration to the problem of ascertaining that date, as well as many other important dates as possible. Obviously, there's no reckoning of time in the Old Testament with reference to BC or AD or any other point fixed or known in the Old Testament author. So the matter is more complicated than might originally seem. But to answer your question, Brian. Um, if we just look at the Bible itself, according to 1 Kings uh, chapter 6, verse 1, it says the Exodus occurred about 480 years prior to the laying of the foundations of Solomon's temple. And I'll read that passage to you. It's 1 Kings 6.1. So the Bible itself gives us the date of the Exodus. It says in verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 6, it says, And it came to pass in the 480th year, after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord so here in verse 1 of 1st Kings chapter 6 we have uh, evidence uh, of a date now uh, we know we're we're pretty sure in fact most scholars are are pretty certain that Solomon undertook the laying of uh, of that foundation of his temple in the fourth year of his reign which is around 966 BC so uh, that being said, uh, if we just use standard normal hermeneutical practices and we give at least the benefit of the doubt to the biblical data, then that would place the Exodus at around fourteen forty six BC. So, uh, so we, if so, the, if that's the correct date of the Exodus, then we're going to find evidence of that in the archaeological record.
0: And the dating would appear to, to as you mentioned. Uh Play a huge role because if you're looking at the wrong date, then you're you're not going to find the evidence you're seeking after.
1: Absolutely, that's exactly right. Uh, and I would say this, and we, we can get into it in a moment here and talk about this, but let me just say this at the beginning, and this is what I would tell my students uh in archaeology in my archaeology class: that the Exodus and conquest stand or fall together. So if you kind of take a if you take a kind of a macro view of the whole thing, this major historical event. Um, in other words, if, the, if if we're going to give uh, at least the benefit of the doubt to the biblical text, then uh, you're going to basically see the Exodus and conquest together. In other words, if there was, let's just say, just for the sake of argument, there if there was an Exodus and if there was a conquest, then you're going to expect to see them in sequence. In other words, you'll see some evidence of an Egyptian Exodus, and then you'll see some evidence of a some type of military conquest in. Uh, what is now, you know, Israel or obviously Canaan or Palestine, however you want to call it. Um, but in any case, um, there are different dates of that, and one of the other dates that there is given is around twelve, uh, approximately twelve ninety BC. That's the other date. So about a two hundred year difference uh, in that date uh, later. Um, so the earlier date seems to be the date that fits the data. Uh, from the biblical text. But then there's also a problem that not only does the, does the, uh, the, the later date not fit with biblical data, but it doesn't fit the archaeological data. And guess what, Brian? Surprise, surprise. Most most skeptical scholars, well, actually not skeptical, most scholars in general accept the latter date. They accept the 1290 date. And the reason, one of the main reasons why they do that, well, there's a couple of reasons. Um, and, and But one of the reasons is because of the excavations of uh, Kathleen Kenyon in in Jericho, which we'll talk about later. we we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But uh, essentially what Kathleen Kenyon did was she redated uh, the archaeological layers of Jericho, which was uh, initially excavated by the University of Chicago under the uh, over, oversight of archaeologist John Garstang. Uh, we'll come back to that in a moment. But, so, and the other reason, too, is in the text itself, it says that the Israelites uh, built store cities of Petum and Ramses, so, so a lot of people will place the Pharaoh of the Exodus as Ramses II. In fact, in, in the nineteen fifties movie, uh, I don't know if you remember the Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah, so, so the Pharaoh of the Exodus that's presented there in the nineteen fifty six movie was Yul Brynner was Ramses the First. Um, it was the great building. He was one of the oldest reigning. Pharaohs. The problem with Ramses I, I mean there's multiple problems, number one, the date, uh, is that there's not one single shred of evidence in the archaeological record of any kind of plague or any kind of conquest or anything like that. Uh, Ramses I does not fit the data. Uh, so, in fact, most scholars today who, and if you go to an average university and you take a class or took a course in ancient history, uh, they're going to look at the, they, if they even mention the Exodus at all, uh, they'll say, yeah, there's a story in the Bible of an Exodus, but we know it didn't happen because we know the Pharaoh was Ramsey I, and there's no evidence that he, you know, there's any Exodus or like that. So, so um, also, scholars, uh, will, they say, well, what, well, where did the Exodus come from? Well, they said that during the Babylonian exile, uh, these Jews who were there in Babylon, well, they, they do believe in the Babylonian exile that the Jews were in the captivity in Babylon in about the uh, 5th century B.C. So um, what they do is the Israelites made up the story of the Exodus to give them some type of credence or some type of, uh, you know, legitimacy that they they have history, and that's where it really came from. And so that's kind of where it is today, is that people think that, you know, most people think the Exodus has zero historical value. But as you said earlier, if, you, if that's the date that you put as the exodus, that obviously you're not going to find the evidence for it because it doesn't exist. Now, only does it not only does it not exist for the exodus, but it doesn't exist for the conquest either, which is why yeah. most 99% of people today don't believe in the conquest or that it happened uh, because there's not any evidence there. It's uh, so like Indiana Jones. You do know if you remember the first Indiana Jones movie. Where uh, Indy and his uh, sidekick Solid are looking for the the, the tomb of the, the Well of Souls. You know, I remember that, Brian. Any oh yeah, easy fans out there.
0: Absolutely. And, uh,
1: <laughs> they find some date. They, they found some. Indy finds some bit of information that lets them know they're digging in the wrong place. They're not, they're, the, the Nazis are not going to find the Well of Souls because they're digging in the wrong place. Well, it's sort of like the same way the skeptics are looking in the wrong time frame. Obviously, they're not going to find the evidence of the exodus because it doesn't exist in that time frame. It exists in about 1446 B.C.
0: So am I understanding this correctly, that that all of this, uh, the the date setting and things of this nature is coming from the research of Kathleen Kenyon uh, in Jericho?
1: Referring to when I talk about Kathleen Kenyon is our archaeologist who who uh, because before that most people had, uh, had in fact in fact William F Albright who is considered the father of the biblical archaeology in America in the world really uh, the golden age of biblical archaeology happened around the late 40s early 50s in America and uh, William Foxville Albright who was at Johns Hopkins University was considered really the father of modern modern archaeology in in the world today or modern biblical archaeology rather. And what, what Albright did was he did believe that there was a historical exodus and that he placed it, you know, in the general time frame that we did, but Kathleen Kenyon, she redates the site of Jericho, and because Jericho's dates connect with the exodus, and they're sort of like a slide ruler, so if the Jericho dates are incorrect, then by default, then the exodus date must be pushed up further. So... So what she does is she says, well, there is no evidence of a conquest of Jericho, so um, So she redates the site uh, other than, uh, you know, previously to what Garstein had done. But there's the, the the problem, and we can come to this now uh, if you want to, sure, is, that, sure. is that the way we date, I mean, it's it's sort of, a, I'm trying to think of an easy way to, to explain this, um, and to explain it in a simple way. So archaeology, you know, there, there are several different ways that we arrive at dating, but one of the major ways that we, we date sites is by pottery, and it's called ceramic call typology, the science of ceramic typology, or pottery uh, typology. And um, so, in other words, when, imagine, if you can imagine just a chocolate cake or a layer cake, and you have different layers in the cake, well, obviously the lower layers are going to be the older layers, and the top layers are going to be the newer layers in an archaeological site. So, the site's called a tell, so Jericho is a, is a classic tell, T-E-L-L, which is an Arabic word which means mound or hill. And so so Kathleen Kenyon, uh, she excavates later in the 1950s and she um, she's basically going back in with some new strat- stratigraphic methods and new methods for excavating. And she tries to, well, she does, and she redates the site, but she admits a very, very uh, important piece, or in fact millions of these pieces of pottery is called Cypriotic Bichrome Pottery. And so we know from other sites, uh, and and I say we, I mean archaeologists who work in the field, who work at Hotsor, at Gezer, and other locations in the area. So in other words, when you find this Cypriotic Bichrome Pottery, you find that type of pottery, we know from other sources that it will date a tell or a layer according to that particular time frame. Well, well, here's the thing. In, in Kenyon's uh, official excavation
0: report of Jericho, she not once mentions the Cypriot background pottery. Hmm. The problem with that, Brian, the, the big issue with that in layman's terms is that because that
1: undercuts her redating. If she were to include that the site included these millions and millions of Cypriot background pottery, it would undermine her dating of the site. Now the, the scholar who's done the, the lion's share work on this. In fact he's the one who's kind of spearheaded this. It's a, a colleague of mine at Associates of Biblical Research, uh, Doctor Brian Wood. And Doctor Wood um, has basically defended uh, John Garstang's original uh, you know, excavation and dating of the site. So so really the battle, interestingly enough, and ironically enough, uh, Jericho, again, is another battleground. Uh, it was a battleground 3,000 years ago, and that's a battleground today. <laughs> so depending on how you date Jericho, it sort of has a, it has a direct correlation and connection with how we date the Exodus. So there's a, sort of an index site that helps us to, to sort of, and again, there's other sources as well. It's not just Jericho, but Jericho is a very important site for, uh, for dating the Exodus as well. So, so... Let's go back and say this. So if, if uh, Dr. Bryant Wood is correct and, and Garstang is correct in their dating of the conquest of Jericho, then that, means that would still place the Exodus at around 1446 B.C., uh, plus or minus a couple of years. So when we look at that date, we can know from, our, uh, from Egyptian sources, now we know who the pharaoh of the Exodus is. And it's not Ramses II. Rather, it is... Actually, interestingly, before I mention his name, interestingly, I, I found it very ironic and interesting that in the Exodus account uh, in the Old Testament, it doesn't mention the name of the Pharaoh. It just says Pharaoh. Uh, it never mentions his name. I mean, it could have mentioned his name, but I think it's actually on purpose. I think Moses, of course, being the writer, the author of the Pentateuch, I think in a moment of irony, because if you remember Brian, the story um, in the Exodus, and when Moses goes before Pharaoh, and he says, "You know, let my people go," and you know, God, you know, God wants you to let them go. And, and throughout the narrative, whenever Moses goes before Pharaoh, Moses or Pharaoh would say, "Well, who is God? I don't know him.
0: I don't know who this is. You know, I will not let him go." Right. And a touch of irony:
1: we don't know who Pharaoh is, but we know who God is. <laughs> we know the God of Pharaoh, but We know the God of the Bible. So I think it's interesting that for millennia, we don't know who the pharaoh is, and now we're, you know, based on historical and archaeological technical work, we can sort of now ascertain who the pharaoh was, and it was none other than a pharaoh named Amenhotep II. Amenhotep II. In fact, in Exodus chapter, uh, Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, it says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Um, the book of Exodus is not going to exalt the name of the Pharaoh, who by the way according to Egyptian archaeology and history, the Pharaoh is considered to be the God, the divine God he, he was literally God's representative on earth, uh, according to the Egyptians so um, so according to this chronology um, it was uh, it was actually uh, Amenhotep II, which uh, I'll tell you about in a second here and um, And we know that he lived, his reign was around 1450-1425 to BC. Um, Now, again, I want to quote Dr. Eugene Merrill, who uh, who I consider to be one of the top scholars in this area, historical scholars, at least in the Old Testament. He says this about about Amenhotep II. Our identification of Amenhotep II as the pharaoh of the Exodus is supported by two other considerations. First, although most of the kings of Dynasty 18 make their principal residence at Thebes, far south, of the Israelites in the Delta, Amenhotep was at home in Memphis and apparently reigned for the most reigned there for most of the time. This placed him in close proximity to the land of Goshen and made him readily accessible to Moses and Aaron. Second, the best understanding suggests that Amenhotep's power did not pass to his eldest son, but rather to Thutmose IV, a younger son. This is at least implied in the so-called dream stela found in the great base of the great saints in Memphis. So, um, so also we know this as well about Amenhotep. We know a little bit about what he was like. Amenhotep the second was a famous sportsman in his youth, and we know this from from several of the inscriptions uh, that we find in Egypt. We find him hunting on a chariot. Uh, we find him; he was very adept at using a bow and arrow. Um, his father was Tutmosis the third, who is incidentally considered to be the Napoleon of Egypt. He was a very, uh, you know. As a military man, he was uh, very adept at military, you know, campaigns, things like that. Um, but then, also, Brian, let me mention as well some some new developments that have been made uh, in regards to Amenhotep II. Um, earlier, I mentioned Dr. Uh, Dr. Brian Wood, and again, another scholar who uh, is a, a brilliant, brilliant man. As I right. in fact, he just got some new articles that are coming out. Uh, which uh, hopefully I can give to you, you can give to your listeners some links to some of his articles. His name is Dr. Douglas Petrovich, and uh, he got his PhD at the University of Toronto. And um, he explores an interesting uh, connection between Amenhotep II and the ancient Egyptian city of Avaris during the Egyptian 18th dynasty. So in the article, uh, Dr. Petrovich explores some different theories about the exact timing of the abandonment of the city which would seem to coincide with Amenhotep II. Now, what does this world has got to do with the Exodus? Well, if Amenhotep II is the barrel of the Exodus, then what Petrovich discovered is that there was a city, an ancient city called Avaris, which is in the Nile Delta, which is right there in the land of Goshen. And this city becomes abandoned. Mm. In other words, there were people living in it. Now, here's the interesting thing, Brian. Do you know who lived in that city of Avaris, or who in this one particular area that it just goes blank archaeologically in the ninth year of his reign. There was a, In fact, it's called the crisis year of Amenhotep II's reign. We know the exact year. Wow. The ninth year of Amenhotep II's reign, the city, the part of the city that contained his military goes missing. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> so, anyway, um, and it's not just that, um, so, the second expressly ascribed praise to Amun Ra for military victories on their Asiatic campaigns. This so they basically the father and the son. The father is Moses the third, the son is the II. They they would give praise to this Egyptian god called Amun Ra for their military victories. And um so interestingly, in that same year, the same year, the Christ year of Amenhotep II, uh Dr. Petrovich and many others call it a perfect storm of events. Because not only does his military go missing, but he also orders the destruction of the images of the Egyptian gods. Isn't that
0: interesting? Yeah, now that would be that, that's all of that's kind of you know is it, is a compelling argument because you know if you just logically put it all together, you can see things beginning to fit together like uh, missing pieces of a puzzle fitting just right. Absolutely.
1: This would actually coincide with what we would expect to see. I mean, uh, obviously, the Egyptians are not going to plaster their defeat uh, of a foreign god on their palace walls. But you would expect to find, you would expect to see behavior and things in the archaeological records that would coincide. Now, this is a matter of where just trying to go for, look, no, this, this all matches. This is based on scholarship. It's based on historical detective work. It's not just a hunch. It's not just made up. This is all, it coincides together. And then also, like we said earlier, we said that the exodus and conquest stand or fall together. So if that is the case, assuming that is the case that Amenhotep II is the pharaoh of the exodus, then we would expect to find destruction. of Jericho, the first city that was destroyed as the Israelites left Egypt um, after the 40-year wandering, obviously. And in fact, that they do match that is uh, the city of I, or, or excuse me, Jericho. Jericho was first, and then I. And again, um, to go back to Jericho, uh, the first thing uh, we, we mentioned in Jericho about, you know, obviously that that's a very important uh, archaeological city that we have to look at. Uh, when John Garstang excavated Jericho in the 1930s, he dated City Four. In fact, specifically at City Four. To the late Bronze Age, he was using pottery to date the site. And again, as most people are generally aware, archaeologists have been using pottery uh, to accurately date uh, sites for, for years. And this is called ceramic uh, typology. And it was uh, this, this method, by the way, Brian, of, of using pottery to date archaeological sites was pioneered by, again, William F. Albright. Another, another gentleman by the name of G.E. Wright, George Ernest Wright, which I don't know if, if I'm related to him. That would be great if I was. <laughs> And another ar- archaeologist named Nelson Gluck. Um, but in the early 90s, uh, Dr. Brian Wood, also his uh, doctor at the University of Toronto, he began to question the interpretation of, of uh, Kathleen Kenyon's uh, pottery dating. And again, uh, as I mentioned, uh, there are some really great arguments and uh, scholarship by Dr. Wood that uh, Dr. Dar's was correct in the the dating of uh, Jericho, so I can can pass that on to you. But the site that I actually took part in excavating uh, in Israel was a site called Kerbet el-Makater, which is located in the West Bank. It's located about nine miles north of Jerusalem, and it's the second city that the Israelites uh, destroyed, and that's the city of Ai, Ai, as we uh, sometimes like to call it, but I believe the correct pronunciation is called Ai. Um, so in any case, just as in Jericho, we find the destruction in, uh, in the late Bronze Age in around, uh, you know, I believe, it, I don't know if the date's correct. I want to say it's 1401 or 1405 B.C. I don't, I don't have the dates in front of me right this second. But in any case, the dates do coincide. And interestingly enough, in 2013 at our site, at Turbot el uh, uh the team found uh, one of the a very, very interesting scarab, and the scarab is actually from the reign of either the III or Amenhotep II. And here it is in Israel. Now, we know uh, that the Israelites took things from the Egyptians on their way out of Egypt. And what's interesting about this is that we, we actually find this scarab in Israel, and it independently dates the site to the time of the conquest. Wow. In fact, for Christianity today named the uh, 20, the scarab from Kerbet El Makadar. As the top archaeological discovery of, uh, of the 2013 year, so uh, very exciting discovery, um, and uh, where where we excavated, where the section that I particular excavated was along the cuneate wall. So basically, it was a fortress, and uh, according to Joshua chapter six and seven, six through eight rather, um, we know it's kind of a kind of a long story about what happened at I, You know what. We won't go into all the details there. I'm sure you, you can, uh, folks, can read it. It's for yourself. But uh, to cut to the chase here, what we, what we discovered was we found a late Bronze Age Canaanite city that was fortified and that the gate of the city pointed north, exactly as the Bible says. And we know that it was a classic ambush, according to the biblical text. And we find this. We find the city burned, uh, just like we find Jericho burned. Uh, we find Jericho. The, there was actually two sections of the walls in Jericho that had been breached. They Actually, it was an earthquake or something that made them fall, and they formed a ramp up into the city. The city was burned, just like the Bible says. The city of Ai was burned, just like the Bible says. The dates match. Everything matches. And uh, we found slant stones and bronze arrowheads along our wall in, in, the, in that uh, like Bronze Age time frame. So we've got good archaeological evidence of the conquest. Uh, as well as the Exodus
0: as well. Well, this this brings a question to my mind. You know, it, it seems to me that just hearing this, that there's a vast amount of evidence supporting, um, like, like you say, uh, Bryant Wood's uh, interpretation, which is, is uh, obviously uh, confirming what Garstang has said. It, it seems like there's a great deal of evidence. Why aren't we hearing more about this in... Um, in popular historical circles?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, well, I would even ask, why don't we read more about this even in in Christian circles? Um, And it's the same, it's an issue that's plagued archaeology for for, for years, for decades, and that is called the publication problem. Because... There's a lot of work that goes on uh, in doing archeology. span Obviously the field work is part of it. And then you've got obviously the publication and then there obviously there's debate and there's different, you know, you go to different uh, conferences and everybody debates their theory. And so uh, and everybody has kind of their, their iron in the fire, uh, if you will. And so, I, as you know, I mean, I, I'm an archeologist, but I'm also an apologist as well and, and a thinker and a philosopher. And I, what I try to do is I try to piece all the pieces the to puzzle together, and I and mean, then people are sort of confused, you know. Well, which theory? You know, one somebody says this, somebody says that, and they and they're a different. They have conflicting theories. So I think people, I think there's there's a little bit of skepticism, like you know, well, who which who, which, who do we believe, you know? Uh, but I'm just here to say, I you know, I've studied archaeology for like twenty something years, and you know, the more you learn, the more you find out you don't know. But one of the things that I can see is that people are afraid, the bottom line, Brian, is that people are afraid to give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. Even Christian scholars are afraid to allow the Bible to just speak for itself and give it the benefit of the doubt. And whenever you do that, whenever you allow it to speak for itself, just give it the benefit of the doubt, test it to see if it matches the historical record, then it will come through with shining colors, and it always does. And so... Um, you know, but for the secular world, understandably, you're not going to hear about it because uh, they're not going to give uh, the Bible the benefit of the doubt. Although I think there is a movement today. I think there are people today are assuring this, you know, because obviously truth is not going to die, and you can't kill it, and um, the truth will come out eventually. And I think, uh, you know, you can pull up the wool over people's eyes for so long. Until they begin to see that, you know what, uh, the Bible's been around. People skeptics have been saying for years the Bible's not true, and now every everything we pull up out of the ground matches what the Bible says. So, as uh, I forgot who said this, every time the spades turn an archaeologist, you know, it confirms the Bible again and again. And again, we can't prove everything in the Bible, but what we can do is, at least for me, when, when I would teach archaeology, I would teach that archaeology can do three things: it can uh, it can clarify affirm and illuminate the biblical text. When I say clarify, I mean that it can provide light on certain historical background of the the text. Affirm, what it does there, is it can actually uh, affirm historical events. It can say this happened, or at least this is historical archeological evidence that this happened or this did not happen or we don't, uh, the evidence is inconclusive at this time. But for the most part, uh, the Bible has been confirmed historically uh, again and again and again. And then, of course, uh, it eliminates the text, it clarifies the text as well.
0: Absolutely, and I think, you know, as, as you were uh, mentioning that, it, my mind went back to, again, the, uh, at least in popular society, in the secular world, that, you know, there's this anti-supernatural bias and... Be sure to catch part two of our interview with Ted Wright on the next edition of the Bellator Christie podcast.